players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Flicker, Blue Elemental Blast, Grinding Station, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thorabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello, and welcome to episode 104 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Minds, Desire, and CEDH Lessons. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. And let me tell you, the end of this pre-show ends with a very juicy piece of information. It may or may not be a tentative date for Eternal Weekend 2023 America version. Unconfirmed, but I mean reasonable source uh so check that out if you're interested in that sort of thing shout out to our new patrons since the last one by the way you all must have liked the last episode because we got a bunch of names to shout out here shout out to kyle and ewan from our new youtube members and then on patreon we got geo jever kendall km dr sensei Ryshep, sleeping beluga will and Tally Hokathars, we've got Eliana, the Defiant Necro, in there as well. Shout out to all 11 of our new subs. And if you like the show, that's how we keep it on the air. And if you're interested in running an event or want your local game store to do so, but are worried about the logistics of it, check out Eminence's Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software. You can create and manage four-player or 1v1 tournaments easily, and its unique pairing system ensures you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.events for details. Seeing as we all recently played in the cookout, we've all experienced this firsthand, and it felt pretty good. Shout out to Eminence. Genuinely a pleasure to work with, and they put on a good show. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U. I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. And today we get to talk about Mind's Desire which was unbanned in Legacy yesterday as of the time of this episode, uh, which is incredibly exciting. So we all kind of did some initial delving in. We've done some deck list research, played some matches ourselves, and uh, we're here to teach you some things about what to expect from this deck and maybe how to uh, build this deck because there's multiple early takes on what this is going to look like. And before Bryant starts storming off, because, I mean, we are blessed with, you know, one of the voices of Legacy Storm as a co-host on this podcast, and we're going to let him cook, no pun intended. I want to tell a story, because like two years ago, maybe three, uh, I guess it would have been 2019. So, geez, four years ago, COVID just evaporated time, didn't it? But like 2019, I tweeted that somebody at my local store said that it, Mind's Desire would be fine in Legacy. And I joke that I don't talk to that person anymore. And 
right away, Cyrus Cormangill, another storm god in the legacy community, was like, no, actually, I think Mind's Desire would be fine. And then Bryant got involved in the conversation, too. Like, uh, yeah, we've we've theorycrafted this a lot in the storm community, and we also think it would be fine. Here I was, my uh, smooth brain control mage, just thinking Mind's Desire would be horrendously busted, and we could never see the likes of it again. And someone on high must have had a similar thought to all you Stormcrafters, because uh, we got it. That's <laughs> a big surprise yesterday. Brian, the story that you're telling happened shortly after episode 10 of the Eternal Glory podcast. Brian and Phil hadn't blessed me with their presence yet, but back in the days before them, we discussed the state of combo, and I had a good 20-minute rant about how Mind's Desire would be fine. If you're interested in that, it's still available. Go check out episode 10 of the Eternal Glory podcast. Featuring uh, Honorog Das and Wilson Hunter, right? Correct. We, the dark days. We don't talk about that. Maybe don't check it out. But if you do, pretend that Honorog is me. Oh, man, I have to be Wilson? Yeah, weird. <laughs> I'm going to start us off with some basics about Mind's Desire, and I'll let Bryant get into some of the nitty gritty after that. So one of the core things... Okay, I guess I guess baby steps. As an audio format, we should read Mind's Desire. Phil, you never read the YouTube comments because people get so angry. So this is four colorless and two blue. Shuffle your library. Then exile the top card of your library. Until the end of turn, you may play that card without paying its mana cost. And it has Storm. So, conception. Mind's Desire has Storm, not the spell you flip. Just, just the way you read that could be misconstrued if you're not actually looking at the card. So, the first thing that you probably want to understand about this card is that most traditional rituals are not going to make blue mana. And so, the Rite of Flames, the Dark Rituals, the Cabal Rituals that you are probably used to using to fuel your various Storm spells don't actually produce the blue mana that goes towards casting this, which can kind of make combo turns awkward and sometimes slows you down by one turn. So when you compare this to, say, an Ad Nause or a, a Peer into the Abyss, sometimes Mind's Desire is going to be slower to cast than those things, just in terms of what term you, turn you can actually cast it on. I think Phil brought up a really interesting point here. So like Phil said, Rite of Flame, Dark Ritual, Cabal Ritual, it doesn't cast Mind's Desire. In order to get blue-blue, the format does have things like Lotus Petal, Mox Opal, even Mox Diamond. Some lists play a card like Manamorphose. When you're trying to have a fast Mind's Desire, you put yourself at risk because somebody like Brian Koval that lives and dies by Force of Will might be, you know, aware of what you're up to. And Brian might say, hmm, my opponent's casting Manamorphose. That could give them blue-blue. I shouldn't allow them to have blue blue for mind's desire. I'll force of will this. And then all of a sudden you've wasted tons of resources into a possible mind's desire that's never cast. So in order to get around this, you need to be slower. You need to make your land drops. You need to have blue mana. And then you would go ritual, ritual, lion's eye, lion's eye, mind's desire. But at this point you've given up speed. So mind's desire in its inherent nature forces you to either play into force of will or slow down in order to not play into it. And I think that's kind of a healthy card for the legacy format because it, it doesn't give you everything all at once. Yes, it has storm, but it has a real drawback in the double blue in the top right hand corner. It has another real drawback too. And that's the fact that it is random. When you cast an ad nause, it's not like it's a deterministic kill, because that's just not true. 
but a good portion of the time when you cast that card, your opponent's just dead. But let's say you cast a Mind's Desire with a storm of like five. Some portion of the time, you just hit all artifact mana and rituals and no gas and you die because of it. However, the upside is when you cast your second Mind's Desire in a turn, which you will sometimes do off your first Mind's Desire, it is disgustingly, disgustingly good. Right, and and that's something that we really should think about for all of this discussion about Mind's Desire that in this episode and whatever is to come out in the world. Desire into Desire is the thing that makes Mind's Desire a different engine and possibly better, or at least better at certain things, than the Ad Nauseums, the Pass in Flames, the Peer into the Abyss. Those are all cleaner. They'll get you where you're going. Mind's Desire... It wants to be, it kind of lends itself to being a slower, more stable engine than those things. And it's wildly resistant to force of will. Unless, like Bryant just said, the force of will can clip your filter into blue blue. Trying a force of will, the mind's desire is a huge mistake. Uh, because obviously storm mechanic, but normally you just wait your way up the chain, counter the gnaws. Wait your way up the chain, counter the echo vions. Mind's desire doesn't give that option. So kind of this is is just coming out of my head in real time. We didn't make any notes about this. It's not a fully fleshed out thought, but maybe having Equivians and Mind's Desire in the same deck so the blue mana floating isn't a tell which one you're going towards and creating some ambiguity of what you need to force in the chain might be a direction where this goes, but we can talk about that later. Desire into Desire is is the thing. I don't know if this heuristic's going to hold up in 2023 Legacy, but I remember in 2008 Extended Storm, seven was the magic number where you're usually you're very happy with a seven mind's desire for seven any less than that is just could easily with so i've been working on a list that i streamed privately to the storm discord today and i have a video dropping which tomorrow which would be wednesday and then i have another video dropping friday the list that i'm talking about is for the video for friday but it has three main deck echoes Three main deck Mind's Desires, three main deck Galvanic Relays, no Ad Nauseum. So on top of those, you have four Burning Wish, four Wishclaw Talisman, because Talisman works better with both Echo and Mind's Desire. We'll get into that later, but then Brainstorm. So Alex McKinley did the math. When those are your action spells, you are over 75% to hit on Storm equals five. Just hitting one of those cards. So another Echo, another desire etc so five became the magic number when that is your threat density when you're talking about this number the variables matter right like if you have two of those things removed from your deck it changes or if your deck just has less action that number changes but that gives you a rough idea so you can also change your success number i guess is my point here yep that would make sense because legacy is a leaner and more powerful format than extended so being able to build to a storm five being a happy number versus a storm seven that we were working with last time i put desire in serious decks i mean it was that extended format uh so it, that would make sense, but I mean, the like the kind of ad nauseum tendrils decks that are like one tendrils as their win con, and everything is a filter to get to that one card. I don't know that that's really how you build a 
a Mind's Desire deck. I would love to talk about that. So right now, I'm seeing a lot of lists that people are sending me. In our pre-show, I talked about how people are like, Bryant, where's your deck list? What do you think of this? I received a lot of deck lists from people that are building all in Mind's Desire lists. But I think they forget that the natural strength of Mind's Desire, it's a storm spell. It is uncounterable. Yes, there's Stifle. Yes, there's Fluster Storm. But in general, it fights very well against Force of Will and Force of Negation, which are the key cards people play in the modern era to stop combo decks. Mind's Desire, the best thing about it, it gets to do the thing, but people build it in ways that you can punish it. So Infernal Tutor into Mind's Desire, for example, that's a Nambo. You're not playing into the strength of Mind's Desire. When you're running Manamorphose, that's another thing you don't want to be doing. Yeah, it makes blue blue, but you're you're creating a spot within your deck building that you're likely to get punished. If I'm someone recommending how to build Mind's Desire decks. I think you either want the card High Tide or you want a bunch of artifact mana like Lotus Petals, Mox Opals, Mox Diamonds, stuff like that. Mind's Eye Diamond is really sweet, but it ultimately doesn't help that much unless you're using, using it with Wishclaw Talisman. Because with Wishclaw Talisman, you play the Wishclaw on turn one or two, and then you untap, and then you go, okay, now I'm going to spam my Rite of Flames, my Dark Rituals, my Lion's Eye Diamonds, and then you just activate it, and you get the triple blue from the diamond, and you don't have to worry about someone forcing your tutor because it was already on the battlefield. And a secondary aspect of that is that Galvanic Relay, you always had to pass the turn. With Mind's Desire, you can give Brian Koval your Wishclaw Talisman all you want, because guess what? He's not likely to get to untap when it's Mind's Desire instead of Galvanic Relay. Yeah, Lion's Eye Diamond underperformed in the league that I recorded with in sort of an Infernal Tutor shell for kind of exactly the reasons that you were talking about. Like, timing is very situational, and the list that I was running didn't even run the full play set of Infernal Tutors. So I'm not saying the card was dead weight. Like, it definitely did important things at times, but I don't think it's where you want to be with Mind's Desire unless you have the Wish Clause. Yeah, and that, that story I opened the podcast with about talking to storm experts four years ago about where minus desire would go in the format the thing everybody agreed on was you would have to build a deck to leverage minus desire it doesn't just become one of the tutor bullets in in a burning wish deck or it doesn't just go at the top end of ad nauseum tendrils it's it's its own thing the theoretical debate spiraled into well what would that look like and would it even be good and now we we get to know i love it brian mentioned the old extended deck taps the extended perfect storm i have a lot of experience with that deck and back in the day it ran sins of the past and whenever a card like this so we've had bolas's citadel we had echo of aeons peer into the abyss people always say the same thing they're like oh these cards will create their own archetypes that will be entirely different from ant or the epic storm and they'll be successful on their own i feel like echo is really the only one that's ever truly done that and now we have desire and i think desire is actually more similar to echo than blossom citadel or peer into the abyss yes there's dedicated peer into the abyss decks yes there's dedicated citadel decks not trying to attack anyone in the community but i don't think that those decks are particularly good nor are they successful i think that we're going to see a lot of different decks playing minds desire to great effect yeah i'm excited about it and we've made multiple jokes at my expense so far just in the 15 minutes we've been recording about how i like blue cards and you mentioned bryant that these all-in lion's eye diamond and fertile tutor centric storm decks are not really where mind's desire flourishes but where mind's desire does flourish is a deck that wants to hit its land drops and build resources use its life total as a resource and then just clown somebody all at once and nothing has ever clowned anybody so hard all at once as Mind's Desire, where you just whip your entire library onto the stack. We mentioned the extended deck a number of times. I played 
Perfect Storm and Vintage for many years. Mind's Desire is kind of my jam. The year I won Vintage Champs, I had Mind's Desire in my deck. It wasn't even good. It was probably a wasted slot. That deck didn't need Mind's Desire or Tendrils, but oh baby, did I play them. I'm just very excited because it lends itself to the type of magic that I want to play, which is combo control even. Like at some point you have to cast a bunch of spells in a turn to pay this thing out. It's not quite like a food chain style combo control or a learn style where it's a one card contained thing. You do need a an infrastructure, but I am interested in seeing how far this goes. Like I, I don't know if value minds desire is going to be a thing, like a deck that's not a storm deck, but like at some point I, a control deck, like a lot of my Uro decks end up with 10 lands in play. What if I just like ponder, brainstorm, swords to plowshares, desire for four, put like two planeswalkers and a ponder on the stack? Am I happy with that? I don't know. We're going to find out, though. <laughs> I guarantee that's coming. I saw some Twitter screenshots from Callum Smith today of just like Mind's Desire in an Emrakul Atraxa show and tell omniscience deck. And like it was a pair of two, three finishes, but there's a lot of design space to be explored here. Well, I mean, one thing that I'm very excited about is the subject of our last episode, Morian Revealed. Has there ever been a more perfect card to go with Mind's Desire? It hits your land drops on the front. It's Ancestral Recall once you're spinning. It's even It even costs one less than Mind's Desire. If you need to spend a turn drawing three for five mana to set up your desire, then you start flipping and you have multiple Ancestrals along the way. That is, they're holding hands in Richard Garfield's dreams, for sure. A quick note about Mind's Desire, and this is... Just some advice for paper play. So the first line of Mind's Desire is shuffle your library. As long as your deck is random, it doesn't matter. So a shortcut to playing this in paper is if you Mind's Desire for seven, as long as your deck continues to be random, you can just exile the top seven cards of your deck. You don't have to shuffle in between every iteration. I saw some people discussing this on Twitter today, and they were like, I will call a judge on anyone that doesn't shuffle in between each one. You don't have to do that. In paper, there's plenty of shortcuts you can take. Yeah, so I, I would like to clarify the you don't have to do that to uh, you may propose a shortcut. And you do have to, if your opponent says, I want to shuffle between each one, they reject your shortcut. They are entitled to that. But yes, what Bryant said, every time I've resolved Mind's Desire in my life, I usually shuffle and I say, my deck is randomized. Do you want me to just run off seven here? Do you want a cut between each one? A lot of people will accept a cut between each one, even if they don't like the idea of running just the seven off the top, even though it's the same thing. Uh, The only way it could be not the same thing is if you flip an instant in Mind's Desire in the middle, you can cast that instant in response to the future Mind's Desire copies which sometimes matters, sometimes doesn't. This is a great thing with Brainstorm in particular. Mind's Desire, you hit a Brainstorm, you can cast that Brainstorm and then use that to shuffle away some of the crap from your hand and get a free shuffle. Right, and if you have a second Desire in your hand, you can throw that back into the pool of cards that could be hit if you Brainstorm mid. There is a video from Eternal Weekend Paris that I believe Rodrigo Tagores took of me storming off with Mind's Desire while I have Bolas's Citadel in play. Each Mind's Desire flips a card. It might be an instant. I look at my top card with Bolas's Citadel in between each Mind's Desire to see if it's an instant, and then I have to shuffle and do it again. And it was like a desire for 20 with Citadel in play. It, it was kind of a mess, but you can resolve things cleanly as long as you propose a shortcut and every and your opponent's okay with it. Going into our second section on directions to take Mind's Desire, a lot of people are really excited to go back into that 2006-2007 Sins of the Past type era, where you have this card that you reveal that gets you another Mind's Desire. There are better cards in 
2023 than sins of the past i mean that's a sweet one who doesn't love the original ravnica foils whatever but today we have mizzix mastery a card that saw play or at least a little bit of play in arena storm i believe it was a not explorer historic yeah it was definitely historic so you would desire reveal mizzix mastery get back minus desire cast it again here i'm gonna i'm gonna pause you to read that card because i don't think that's a super common one so mizzix mastery is three and a red exile target card that's an instant or sorcery from your graveyard for each card exiled this way copy it and you may cast the copy without paying its mana cost exile mizzix mastery it also has overload for five and three red there's also invoke calamity which is one red 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 so five mana total for a sorcery you can cast up to two instants or sorceries from your graveyard with a converted mana value of six these are cards that people are trying to play with mind's desire the issue that I have with these shells, and I mean, they're ultimately fine, is they create more dead draws within your deck. So when you're not already doing your thing, you have a bunch of duds. And I think it's certainly a direction you can go, but it's very risky. So people are trying to play these cards with things like Faithless Looting, or you want a Burning Wish for a Mizzix Mastery that then gets back a Desire that you discarded to the Lion's Eye Diamond as a shortcut to casting Desire for Less. These things are fine, but it opens you up to Graveyard Hate for one, and two, you're taking away the strength of Desire once again, which is being uncounterable. You're creating points in which you're easily disrupted. I think you just want to think about that while you're constructing your deck, because if you're willing to do that, why not just recast Peer into the Abyss? I think if Peer resolves, you're way more likely to win than Mind's Desire, and people haven't been doing that the last three plus years. Right. I mentioned in my video today, I recorded Mind's Desire High Tide, which will be out several days before this podcast is. I did a bunch of this theory crafting before we had this conversation, and just Fear of the Abyss costs one more than Mind's Desire does. Is finding that one more mana that much harder than having or enough Storm that Mind's Desire actually works? Because... Like, you can uh, Threshold, Cabal Ritual, Dark Ritual, Peer. That's three cards. If you do that same sort of line, like Ritual, filter it into Blue, Mind's Desire, you're desiring for three, and that sucks. So it's just totally different things that we're asking of a deck. And I also want to point out, unrelated to this, but Invoke Calamity is an instant. Uh, Sins of the Past and Mizzix Mastery are sorceries. Invoke Calamity being an instant, I just want to point out, because we didn't do it, that cards flipped by Mind's Desire have to follow all normal timing restrictions. There are some cards in in Magic, like, I'm trying to think of some examples right now, but there are some cards that say, cast the spell right now. Cards that are templated, you may cast this spell. They mean right now. If it says until end of turn, then you have to follow any timing restrictions. So you can't like use Invoke Calamity to break a Storm Mirror, for example. Let your opponent storm out, then invoke your desire over the top of theirs, unless everything you desire into is also going to be an instant. So just keep in mind that Mind's Desire is a big, clunky, slow sorcery that will probably require a lot of sorcery speed payoffs. While we're on the topic of clunky, I recorded with essentially an ant deck list and I, I played a very early draft of a, a deck by cliffy who is an awesome storm pilot and one of the things that i found immediately when i started playtesting was that the deck cannot have tendrils of agony be its only way to kill um i was in a situation where one of my opponents 
had three copies of Veil of Summer. I had no way to beat that other than repeatedly cast discard spells into it, let them draw a card, pass the turn, and it was horrible. If I had any other out in my deck, I could have like Mind's Desired for like 10 and worked towards finding it, and I just didn't. So just kind of be aware that that's something to beat. Maybe play an Empty the Warrens or a Grape Shot or an Eve or something. Um, another thing... In another round, my opponent was playing an interesting show-and-tell decklist that was three colors while also having Ancient Tomb, and they cast a Leyline of Sanctity, and I looked at my deck and conceded, because I just could not beat my opponent once I could not target them with tendrils. So just be aware of having appropriate outs and alternative win conditions when you start doing your brewing. Playing Storm, you always have to know what you have to beat. I had a, a small ant arc, probably, like, eight years ago where I played Ant in three tournaments, I didn't know what I needed to sideboard for counter hate. Like I didn't bring in Chain of Vapor versus Hive Mind at a local tournament and they just had turn zero Leyline of Sanctity. I had no way to remove it and no way to kill them in my deck. I didn't bring in the Empty. I didn't bring in the Chain of Vapor. Normally I would uh, have just conceded there, but I, I was like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of on tilt. I'm just going to play it out. And I ended up finding a line where I just played out all my Lion's Eye Diamonds. And when they went for their Hive Mind kill, I just paid for three packs with Dark Ritual and Lion's Eye Diamond in my upkeep and then beat them down with the four fours they gave me off Pact of the Titan. So scoreboard universe. Yeah, sometimes it is as simple as uh, like if I could win that game with Pact of the Titan, imagine what a Empty the Warrants would have done. So just make sure you know how to actually win the game. Storming out is not actually a win con in itself. You need to have a spell that kills your opponent at the end. Phil, I'm glad that you brought up ways of beating these Minds Desire decks, because I think that's an important thing to remember. I quickly glanced into the Reddit thread and people were already, the sky is falling, I can't believe they unbanned Minds Desire. Uh, Veil of Summer. A lot of Storm decks don't play cards that beat Veil of Summer, even though I think Veil of Summer is terrific right now with all of the Shadow and Grixis Delver and Reanimator around. People should be playing it, but people aren't playing answers that beat Veil of Summer out of Storm either. Leyline of Sanctity. But if you're looking specifically to beat Minds Desire, Stifle is a card that you're allowed to play. That was the original answer back in Scourge. Stifle is printed to stop Storm. We also have Fluster Storm. These control decks or decks that play blue can adapt. They can go from playing 4 Force of Will plus 3 Force of Negation in the sideboard to 4 Force of Will, maybe 1 Force of Negation and a pair of Fluster Storms. There's options that they have. Or there's a spicy card that I saw today on Twitter, Nimble Obstructionist, which is a bird wizard that's a 3-1 that cycles and Stifle a card card uh there's some people getting blown up by that shout outs to james casau i believe the last name is pronounced uh grixis expert always playing the bird wizard in grixis shells on magic online i mean there's actions you can take i don't think mind's desire is actually going to shift the format a ton storm decks have been in the hole for a little while now and if you want to beat storm you can. The format just hasn't been in a space since 2018 where they truly had to respect Storm. And if you have to, Aethersworn, Canidus, Nolrog, Counterbalance, these are all things you could easily play. I made the finals of Vintage Champs one year with Nimble Obstructionist in my deck. Shout out to Stiflebird. Big fan of that one. Also, uh, it was in that deck to beat Doomsday, and it's a uh, uncounterable, unstoppable Stifle for their uncounterable, unstoppable Thassa's Oracle. So one other thing that I kind of learned live while playing Mind's Desire, I, I tried to do a value Mind's Desire. Uh, I think it was to beat the like Triple Veil of Summer situation, where I was just like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to refill my hand 
and then I'm going to try to win a different turn. And Mind's Desire exiles the cards, folks. And I had two win conditions in my deck. Guess what went to exile? And good old Phil was now dead to his own Mind's Desire. Just be aware that that's a thing. Yep, it's not Galvanic Relay. You get the cards now, but you don't get them later. <laughs> I think uh, another interesting thing is that Galvanic Relay plays super well into Mind's Desire, which is something that I've been experiencing with the list that I'm testing. So an early Galvanic Relay that might be able to sneak through Days and Force of Willow for five or six, your Lion's Eye Diamonds that you get off that can then cast your Mind's Desire. And on top of that, it's Natural Storm to build into the Desire. So, so far in my testing, I've done Relay into Desire a few times, and it's honestly cracked. But also, if I Desire into Relay, that's also incredibly good, because I'm going to bury you the following turn. So, Echo, Relay, Desire, they all play super well together, and I'm here for it. Yeah, Relay has a lot of the bones of Mind's Desire in it. Uh, it we've referred to it as Necropotence many times on this pod and in other conversations, but we've never called it Mind's Desire before. And it, it kind of is both a mini Mind's Desire and a mini Necropotence, and it makes sense that all those cards would be played together. So as we kind of wrap up this section on Mind's Desire, given the few matches that we've played and limited testing, what what are your thoughts on the cards overall? Is this format changing is this going to make its own archetype is it changing stuff is this just totally fine what are your sort of initial thoughts i believe that it has fundamentally changed the archetype of storm uh as a ad nauseum stand for the last 16 plus years i think i don't know how math works it's 2023 and i've been playing ad nauseum since 2006 uh i love it that's definitely not the number I this is the time to cut ad nauseum. Mind's desire is actually just better. It's not life loss dependent. Uh, it's still good on the combo mirrors. It allows you to play a full playset of Echo of Aeons. You get to run more Galvanic relays without risk. It's changing the way Storm decks are built. I know that the ant players in the Storm Discord are like, hey, we can play Lorien Revealed now. We can cut Preordained, we can cut down on lands, we'll play Lorien Revealed. You can flashback Lorien Revealed and Mind's Desire with Past and Flames. There's a lot of different ways you can build these decks right now, and I think it's an exciting time to be playing Dark Ritual. I don't know if it will be good enough to beat Grixis Delver or Death Shadow, but more options is always a good thing. Yeah, my thought was that it would add another dimension to Storm as an archetype, because for a long time we've had Ant and TES. And then there's like some Echo stuff, there's the Epic Gamble, there's Saga Storm. Rather than just there being one correct Storm deck or one obviously busted Storm deck, it's cool that we have like five or six materially different Storm archetypes that you have to play against differently. And I think Mind's Desire will widen that gap. I don't know exactly where it slots into the existing set of Storm decks, I'll leave that up to Bryant, but definitely opens up another lane that Storm could go. A lot of people are talking about the high or I'm sorry, the high tide decks, and those are kind of different. Yes, they're still storm decks, but they play a more traditional combo role. You have to either turn about or candelabra of Taunos or uh, time spiral into Mind's Desire. They just play very differently. They're still storm decks, but they're not the dark ritual mox type storm decks. And a lot of people now with Mind's Desire are saying like, hey, can we unban Frantic Search? I think you're asking for something you don't actually want. I'm just going to throw that out there. I think having Desire and Frantic Search is a lot. Uh, you don't want to face the turn three Storm deck that also gets to play Forcible Fluster and Pact of Negation. I think uh, it's going to leave for some, create some bad times. 
Yeah, the high tide decks play closer to that food chain or that Aloran that I shouted out earlier. You just hit a bunch of land drops, you play kind of a normal game, you can trip, you counterspell, maybe you play some removal. It's go time all of a sudden. Versus a deck that is designed to do it quickly and ruthlessly, which is closer to the the Bryant side of Storm. So I, I feel like this is going to be a reasonable thing to do in Legacy. I don't know that it's going to be one of the absolute best things to do. And I also feel like if you want to beat it, there are just totally going to be appropriate counters. I can't imagine being happy playing one of these decks and just getting like grief reanimate griefed out of games just before I can get established at all. I think that is going to feel really bad because a lot of times you're keeping your hand with a couple of cantrips and maybe one major business spell and you really need every every piece if you want to get your storm count high enough to do things with mind's desire so we'll we'll see how it shakes out reanimate troll is also just a hell of a fucking clock to deal with in the same sort of matchups yeah that gets you dead in the same sort of speed that you would like to deploy your desire uh so just i recorded with spiral tide today that video should be a few days old by the time anyone's hearing this but i'm not going to spoil it if anyone wants to check it out but i did well against slow decks and non-blue decks and I did poorly against blue decks with creatures that could attack. And that was my experience. All right, let's go ahead and pivot into the second half of the episode here. So all three of us recently attended Eminence's The Cookout in Atlanta. And Brian also played in Surfside as well. So we wanted to spend a few minutes kind of talking about some things that we've learned from CEDH recently and uh, share some of our format thoughts with you all. And before we get into our deep thoughts, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've done it full episodes on it before, but legacy players, I think you would enjoy many of the aspects of CEH. Being a four player game versus two is some adjusting to get used to, and a lot of people are just out on that from the jump, but the play patterns, the cards, the type of things you get to do, the EDH ban list is smaller than the legacy ban list. EDH is more broken than legacy. If you like that sort of thing, it is a playground over there, and I'm just going to make that short pitch to explore it, look at some decks, because I think you would like it if you're listening to this pod. All right, so let's just kind of start with some generic experiences of the event. It was just a very pleasant event to play. Like, it, the event was in a hotel. You could go up to your hotel room and like get snacks and just have a place to chill and get out of the tournament hall in between rounds, which were relatively wrong long. They are 90 minute rounds um, as current rules stand. There was a round where I dumpstered the table with an early ad nauseum and I had 70 minutes and I went to the Waffle House that was attached to the venue and had a, a nice little lunch there. And by the way, unironically enjoy waffle house always have internet memes aside that that is a affordable place that they will feed you pretty well pretty quickly so shout out to waffle house in general but i got lunch at waffle house went up to the room took a nap came back down refreshed in the middle of the day that was kind of the nuts i've been to so many magic tournaments over the course of my life and none of them are like eminence gaming events so i've gone to punt city 2 and then the cookout and both times event hall was a party space at night where people cube drafting, drinking, eating food, whatever you want to do. 
it was happening in the gaming hall. Like people just didn't leave. Like they 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 forced it to be closed at three a.m. so they could clean up the room for the next day. But like that's pretty late. And meanwhile, people were just hanging out there all night, like sharing pizza, drinking. Like it was just a blast. And I've never been to a magic tournament uh, that isn't an Emmonson event where that happens, where it's really more like a, a giant party for friends or for people that love the format than anything else. It felt like a baby magic con in many ways, like just playing games in lobby, getting last minute play testing. Yeah. And you can, like Brian said, cube drafts, uh, Drake Sasser was there trying to fire his vintage cube. I, I think there was a commander cube in the room. People had both casual and competitive EDH. A bunch of people asked me if I had Legacy, which, no, I, I travel pretty light to events. I don't bring decks I'm not planning on playing, but it, the thought that counts. Uh, people are just trying to game. And there was one night that we all went out to dinner. We uh, just took our sweet time. We had a nice dinner. We came back to the hotel. It was probably, what, 1030 or 11. We were like, well, do we do we want to go game? <laughs> and it was just available and I, I decided to go to bed, wrap it up. But Bryant, you went back downstairs and game, didn't you? Oh, I did. I 306-0'd that Vintage Cube draft to Drake Sasser. No one else was drafting Storm, Brian. With me at the table? Come on. Yep, the called shot is sometimes the correct shot. All right, so the event was physically very pleasant. Let's talk about some things we learned and I, I want to start with one card that my evaluation of changed a lot over the weekend, and that's Mental Misstep. Uh, banned in Legacy, we don't get to play with it there anymore, uh, but the card's great. In your two's estimation, what is that card supposed to counter? How do you use that card? I believe it's really contextual. I am more like a traditional storm deck, so Brian probably uses it a little bit more differently. I really use it to protect my own win. So in CDH, there's a lot of one-mana counters that people play. Dispel, miscast, things like that. And I am looking to hit other people's interaction for me. That said, it also varies because if I'm in a pod against Winota, I might counter that Soul Ring because I don't want Winota bringing down all of her friends with her. So it changes a little bit. But in general, I don't counter Soul Rings. I don't counter Esper Sentinels. I will go after Mystic Remoras I, because it's so difficult to win through a Remora. But I usually hold it. I'm not going to counter someone's Soul Ring because in CDH, you counter someone's Soul Ring and it hurts them. But the two other people are unaffected, and now there's two people that are both down a card. Does that really benefit either of you? Meanwhile, if you're protecting your own win, you're dealing with three other people by making them dead. Yeah, I had a game that plays into that same thing you just said, because there are four players in the game, and in a 1v1, I'd probably mental misstep a Soul Ring. I've done it in Vintage. Like, it cuts two mana that they thought they were going to have they kept their hand on the strength of out from under them for the whole game but when you have three opponents you are spending a card to answer one card from one opponent and two other opponents have lost no cards uh, the table just become became net softer for those two i had a testing game and i'm not sure if i would have made the same play in a tournament but just test some theory where i had a turn one esper sentinel and someone else had a turn one ragavan and although there was a player wide open for Ragavan to connect with, they attacked me. And then I had to decide, 
am I just going to let this Ragavan bully me, reduce my life total, feed treasures to this opponent in order to keep my draw engine of Esper Sentinel around? Or am I going to block and that player and I are down this resource versus two other people? And that I thought that was a really interesting situation. And I snapped off the block, send a message in the testing game for sure. Like, don't come my way. Uh, I will block that. And after the game, the player who is somebody whose opinion I respect, they weren't just some dummy. After the game, they were just like, yeah, I should not have attacked you. Because in CEDH, collecting your own resources is so much more important than stopping anyone else's resources. In If you can fight over a Ristic study or something that's going to get completely out of control, you probably should. The idea of putting someone to the test on a blocker, trading one for one, Ragavan for Esper Sentinel, that's a pretty normal trade in 1v1. But that's two players down meaningful resources against two other players, and we all got to stop each other. I think that's just a bad attack from that player, and it might be a bad block for me too. I, I think that whole combat should have never been offered. And that's just a totally different way of thinking. Uh, and it ties directly into, do you mental misstep a soul ring? Yeah, so I, I bring this up because I was misstepping Esper Sentinels quite a bit towards the B, like in my playtesting sessions, because Tivit often plays a slow game where you're trying to accumulate resources with like your Ristic Studies and Lothos and taking something off the table that allows my opponents to do the same was conceptually very appealing to me and now that i've played more games with the deck i am much less likely to go and do that now that i have more experience one of the things i'm i'm less confident about still is whether i i misstep a vamp tutor because a lot of times it's something that doesn't matter and they're just getting, you know, a, a mana mana crypt or whatever to pull ahead on mana. But other times it's the other piece of an A plus B that your misstep is not going to interact with. So picking the spots to interact with misstep is incredibly interesting to me. Yeah, that's that's the whack-a-mole of using your context clues to solve for what you think they're going to get. Because if you misstep a vamp tutor that was going for soul ring, that's the same as misstepping a soul ring, maybe worse. But if they're getting Ristic study, that's going to draw them 25 cards over the course of the game. And you can't counter the study with the misstep you need to go. So it's really important to read those cues and know where to fire off spells like that. Same with combo turns, where if you have something like red elemental blast, uh, that can hit Thassa's Oracle, but it can't hit Underworld Breach. So, uh, or it's not effective against Brain Freeze. So, if your opponent Mystical Tutors and grabs Brain Freeze, your Pyroblast just got a lot worse. Uh, so, there's just a bunch of spots like that. Or uh, Dispel can't counter Thassa's Oracle. Uh, so, you have to fight over the instants that lead up to the Oracle arriving. Uh, the tons of spots like that uh, and that's all texture of a hundred card singleton format because you have to play the second third fourth fifth and sixth best version of a card you don't just get four fluster storms you need to go into the dispel miscast spell pierce pantheon and play all of them and emulate the card that you actually want to play four of 
So an another thing here in terms of evaluating what your opponent is going to do, you need to change your expectations based on how good your opponents are. And this is something I struggled with a lot at the beginning of the event. Um, I, I wrote an article for Eminence Gaming that has some of the anecdotes. But a lot of times I was over or underestimating my opponent's abilities. So for example, in one of my later rounds, one of my opponents cast a Vampiric Tutor. I had a misstep in hand and I was like, yes, that's fine. A couple turn cycles down the road, they played an opposition agent and they were like, yeah, I tutored for that. This is great. And I was like, why did you tutor for an opposition agent instead of tutoring for something that could actually try to win you the game? Could not conceptually figure out where, where they were coming from with their decisions. And that made evaluating use of counterspells much harder. Sometimes people just want to watch the world burn, Phil. Oh, I get it. I'm an opposition agent Stan. Like, I, I, I love that card. I play it off Dark Ritual all the time. But my, my ability to evaluate where I should pick my spots was harder when I had zero ability to understand what my opponent's thought process was. I will say this. EDH or CDH players often come in with some preconceived notions about who's the threat, who, what you should be doing. And I had a game where seat one had turn one Remora. I mulliganed to five and went land Rograk go. Seat two had turn one Esper Sentinel. Or I'm sorry, seat three had turn one Esper Sentinel. Seat four had turn one Ristic Study. The player that had turn one Remora then played a turn two Ristic Study. And I was like, oh boy. And then seat th three had turn two Ristic Study. So I was facing down Esper Sentinel, Remora, triple Ristic Study. And on my turn three, I played Demonic Tutor. And all three of them started talking about how I was the problem at the table. Like, this is something that happened in real life. And it's because some people, like, people are just like, oh, Rograk player is the problem. And they don't change their evaluations. And I think something that's important to remember is that not everyone is at the same place in their magic journey. I'm sure you remember being younger and being not quite as good at the game. Now you're, you know, really good. And sometimes, especially in CDH, people come from the casual background and some people come from the competitive background and now they're meeting in the same place. And it's a group effort. You have to help each other, you know, I mean, help them help you, right? That's ultimately what you want. Yeah, I believe Sperling said at first where some massive percentage of tournament CEDH is convincing players not to kill themselves. Like you really do need to help players make good decisions that benefit the table at large. And they don't always believe you when you're being helpful and they shouldn't believe you implicitly, but the ability to, I don't want to say manipulate or finesse because those aren't even the words, uh, but have a hand in more than one player's decisions throughout the game as people say in cdh all the time or edh and then it bleeds into cdh where it doesn't belong like you're you're one out of four you should win 25 percent of your games i think that is just wrong and bad way to think about it you're playing 25 percent of the seats in the game at baseline but i like to think i'm playing 50 or 60 percent of the decisions in the game even if I'm not holding the cards that make them. And I know for a fact I've played against opponents who are good for 10% of that game. 
and its outcome. It's really about how can you point things in directions that make sense for you and make sense for the player who you are convincing to do the thing that needs to be done. Because there are people who just huff and puff and yell and everyone's like, shut up. Now, even if you're right, I don't want to work with you. There's also uh, folks who just... I, I know when a lot of the competitive folks stepped into the CEDH space, the old Star City Grinders and stuff, shut up and play your cards was a thing I heard a lot. And I don't hear anyone saying that anymore because they've all learned that you can't shut up and play your cards when there might be someone at the table who just is absolutely disrespectful of heuristic study and just feeds someone better than them 10 cards over the course of a game. Maybe you are doing your work, but someone else is not doing theirs and you can't just ignore that. You can't shut up and play your cards. I love the dynamic of having those conversations and pointing other people's spells where I need them to be and stuff. I just think that's really cool. And that feeds directly into what Phil said, where sometimes it's different levels of convincing needed against four highly skilled players. You can say like, okay, what do we got for this one? And everyone kind of understands that this card is bad and anyone who can do something should at a lower skill level table. Or I found the most dangerous people, the uh, the ones who think they're skilled, but they're not. Uh, they're always trying to bully you on priority. They always pass on a spell just to sniff out what you have uh, when they could have answered the thing cleanly. Uh, there's all different skill levels, and you really have to work the room to, to succeed at a high level. There's also the people that try to, like Brian just said, the try to get one past you like oh i think brian has i'll pass on priority and then c3 is like oh i have nothing and they're like oh well would you like to tap your lane and pass priority back around there's so many like tricks like that in cdh uh, that example is often referred to as mana bullying to try to get people to tap all of their mana before you play your counter spell and you can also just say no be like i am not going to play that game cast your spell uh or whatever it is but it's tough because some people think that they know all the tips and tricks, but you don't have to play into those. Uh, like you can just not engage. I guess that's my point here. Yeah. There's, there's some just like with one V one magic, uh, there's sometimes people try to get in your head. Um, if my opponent is talking a lot, I talk very little. If my opponent is not talking at all, I talk a lot. I, I do try to sort of, pull my opponent out of where they want to be, even in 1v1. And skilled players know how to counteract that and shut it down. And like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try it against you know, Nathan Stoyer. Uh but I do it all the time at against Joe Star City competitor, whoever. That sort of stuff uh you have to be aware of. I will say this. I used to be someone that was just like, I don't like table talk. Let's just play our cards. And I've come around. I've never used more table talk than I did at the cookout. I unfortunately bubbled out into 18th place. I did not make the top 16 cutoff, but I definitely had a draw and a win because I talked the table into doing something that was favorable for me. So never trust me. I'm kidding. But like you can use those sort of things to your advantage by keeping someone alive or convincing someone to stop someone else's win. And it benefits you in the long run, especially if you can make it convincing for the table that it's good for everyone. Yeah. And it's not even a lie. The best ones are where it's like, there is an underworld breach on the stack. We're going to lose somebody do something about this. And you can't argue with that. Like where 
if all three players are open, convincing a player where to send their Ragavan attack uh, might be a little more dubious, but something like, you know, breaches on the stack. We're going to lose. Now or never, team. Uh, you got to do it. Something that's very important to understand is that you have three enemies, but you also have three allies. And at any given time, you are probably aligned with two of those three players to make it through any given turn cycle. And while a lot of times I felt like I had the best technical understanding of the game and the best ability to like assess who was the threat, I often did not have intuitive information about like fringe decks that my opponents were playing. So for example, I played against a Samwise deck in one round and I, like I knew it was food combo. I understood that. I understood what the primary combo pieces were and then a green sun went on the stack and I'm like, folks, what does this get? I don't know. You need to explain this to me. Rely on your opponents when you need help. Yep, exactly. I, I'm sure I've said this on the pod before, but when I won Oktoberfest last December, maybe had 10 games of my deck under my belt, maybe 25 total games of CEDH. You can't know every commander, every card, all that in in the tiny amount of testing I did. But I won the tournament by when I was unsure of something, just asking the other players. Like, uh, there's a fiend artisan that's about to untap. What does that get? And they're like, oh, that's going to get Grand Abolisher uncounterably. And then next turn, they're going to get Thassa's Oracle uncounterably. So you should probably act now if you have an answer to fiend artisan. Okay, I'll kill that. And just... That those sort of conversations you can really lean into and you don't have to do it yourself. Shut up and play your cards is actively detrimental to you and the table. So a quick antidote from the event since Phil mentioned the food player. I happened to face them in one of the rounds and the game ended up being a draw. And at the end, they stood up. They're like, I'd like to shake your hand. And I was like, OK, uh, it was nice meeting you. Nice playing you. And they're like, you know, before the round, I heard that you were a giant asshole, but I thought you were fine. <laughs> uh, i love magic players yeah i like pleasant kenobi better but your stuff's pretty good like you could have just said my stuff's pretty good thanks uh but but yeah um personalities are a big part of it i know we're bumping up against our hour here but i played what was one of the worst games i've ever experienced this past weekend at surfside showdown one of the players just from from the jump from mulligans they were already being really annoying with their mannerisms they were on Tivit, and they mulliganed to five. They kept a hand that could turn to Tivit with a bunch of mana rocks. The player ahead of them played Mystic Remora, and they just shoved all their mana rocks into the Mystic Remora, which they might have had to do because they're Tivit, and that they kept their hand based on that plan. And then I had Dranith Magistrate to stop Tivit from being castable. And then they spent the next two turns tutoring for and then deploying Rhystic Study. I told the player who was the other another player had mulligan to three in this pod so it was me and another tim necron player i had tim going the other tim necron player had rhystic study going and i was like we're in a 1v1 right now do not in start including these other players you just did not believe me and fired multiple win attempts straight into tivit's rhystic study tivit had 20 30 cards in hand at some point i talked to the other blue farm player later uh we actually got dinner both nights uh he's the person i mentioned in the pre-show with the rv uh like he was pretty new to the format he was a really nice guy and he just could not think or make any sort of plan with how awful the tivit player was being just as 
a person in the seat. The tippet player the entire time just accused me of having tons of interaction. And they were doing some priority bullying where I knew they had interaction and they would just pass priority into me, make me deal with it. And on the last turn of the game, time was called. So if this if nobody won on this active turn, there would be no winner. And the other blue farm player shoved another win attempt. He actually went breach into get breach stuffed into go for Oracle. He had two more win attempts on his final turn, but he was 3v1ing because we were playing for the draw. When the dust settled and there was Thassa's Oracle on the stack with a red blast pointed at it. And the the other Timnacron player made it clear like, yeah, I'm out of interaction here. I guess we draw. And the Tivit player said, hold up. And then misdirectioned the red elemental blast to misdirection, protecting another player's Thassa's Oracle. And I was like, what is this, a spite play? Like, you'd rather lose than draw? Uh, Like, what is going on? And he, like, looked at me when he cast the misdirection, and he's like, I just want to see what else you got. And luckily, the other player at the table had deflecting SWAT to just send the red blast back to the Thassa's Oracle, but because I had nothing. Person being really miserable and awful and in their own head about a bunch of stuff, and they'd rather look smart than be smart. it, It was just a really weird interaction really weird game you unfortunately have to know how to deal with that uh, at the table when someone is actively protecting another person's win out of an attempt to look intelligent like they i know you have something else go ahead counter my misdirection like that shit is just weird and but they're out there on a slightly different note i play rograk silas uh, often known as rogsai at the cookout, there was nine of us playing the deck. None of us converted to top 16. 17th, 18th, 20th, and I think 23rd were all Rogsai, but none of us made it in, even though we were all 3, 3, and 1. However, at Surfside, one of the developers for Eminence, Zane Nair, switched back to Rogsai from Dahada and then won the whole event on my post-cookout list with one card swap. So 99 out of the 100 were the same. Uh, I had a lot of experiences at cookout where cards that I was previously high on, I became lower on. Uh, I think the format shifted to be a lot more creature removal based due to Winota and Kinnon. And then my Narset, my uh, Notion Thief, my Opposition Agent, they all were considerably worse every single time I drew them. And I think Orcish Bowmasters had a big part to do with that. So I made some adjustments, gave Zane the list, and then Zane crushed. And I just wanted to shout out Zane for doing, you know, taking the whole thing down. And uh, it's pretty awesome. Yep. And on on that general point, I mean, shout out to Zane. Congrats. Uh, repping your own company by winning your own tournament is such a baller move. Love it. What you were saying about noticing cards were shifting. CDH is an eternal format, just like Legacy. And even if new cards aren't shaking things up, which they kind of are. I mean, Lord of the Rings had some bangers in it. But the metagame and people learning about stuff, like I very easily made top 16 at the cookout. I was locked for top 16 at the end of day one with still two rounds to play. I could just farm points, play for seed, uh, dream crush, block for friends. Like whatever I needed to do was already free money going into day two. I made two changes to my list, just you know, changed one soft permission spell for another one kind of thing. And I went zero, three, and two at Surfside Showdown six days later. I think what happened was the Surfside metagame, they were all just doing what I was doing. They were all tutoring for Ristic Study early and just never making a win attempt and just hiding behind card advantage engines. 
after three rounds of that, I was zero, one, and two. I drew both of the first two rounds, lost the third one, and I just kind of thought, I wish I was shoving here. Like this metagame kind of calls for a shove deck. And then I lost a round to Dehada, and then Zane won the tournament with Rogsai, and the shove decks really just got it done that weekend. And I don't think that's a sign of anything other than a healthy metagame ebbing and flowing. Uh, 90 minutes sounds like a long time to play one game of Magic, but if three of those players have Rhystic Study, nobody's going to win that game. It's going to be a draw because nobody can get through without something like Grand Abolisher to just shut down the whole interaction table. Uh, you you gen- you literally can't win without a silence resolving, basically, in a table like that. Uh, Zane found the spot, just shoved a faster deck under all these Rhystic Studies and was rewarded with a win. I think that's one thing... Um, if if I'm going to make changes to my Tivit list moving forward, I want to be better at shoving and protecting the shove. In my playtesting games, I won so much because I was prepared to play these long, drawn-out card advantage games. And then when I got to the tournament hall, like too many of my opponents were just trying to shove or not enough of them were interacting to stop other people. And I just wished that I was able to more easily protect some of my combos. So, for example, the Mana Drain was great in my playtesting, where we were playing very slow games, and then in the tournament hall, that mana efficiency was just not there to protect my own combo when I wanted to, like, Tivit plus Time Sieve plus Counterspell in a turn. Yeah, I adjusted my Tivit list. I had one that I copied from Ashani, who did well in a tournament a couple months ago, and then before Cookout, you and Bryant were bouncing Tivit ideas, and I ended up converting to the same list you played and I played Tim in the tournament, but I have Tivit as my backup. And I noticed very clearly when making the transition from Ashani's list to the one that, that you're on, I cut like five or six pieces of one mana permission to make room for two mana mana rocks or five mana planeswalkers, or just, it's just a totally different speed of game built for a totally different speed of game. And there's a lot of, movement that you could do if you want to just resolve Tivit more often versus always win when he does resolve kind of a a balance there all right do we have any kind of closing thoughts that we want to end this cedh section with i think in general it's a super exciting time to be playing magic i think legacy cdh and a ton of the other formats popper like it's a great time. Like I, I love the dynamic that we're in right now in Magic. Like there's a lot of controversy with Universes Beyond, but a lot of that stuff isn't even here yet, aside from the Lord of the Rings set, which I think was fantastic. So yeah, Magic is great. Yep, agreed. Very excited to log in every day and make my videos, whatever they are. There have been times where it's more of a slog or oh here here comes Delver for the third time in this league or whatever. I think Legacy's healthy. I'm excited to play Magic in general. Festival of Knights is in Northeast Pennsylvania in a couple weeks. That's another CDH tournament run by Eminence. I will be at that, and I'm just super stoked about it. I might be asking you about Rogsai in the meantime. Anything's live. I guess my closing thought here is don't be locked in old ways of thinking. Formats are changing a lot right now with Lord of the Rings cards, with unbannings, with metagame changes. Go into everything with a healthy mindset. Be ready to learn, be ready to change your opinions, and you'll probably do well.